this the land you thought it would be? So much talk about liberty throws in a saco. Can you carry on now that your husband is gone? So the protests ranged from London to Paris to Berlin to the Sydney docks. It was a global protest of massive proportions. They wanted job security, they wanted dignity, they wanted things that workers take for granted today. And they won those things as a result of the sit-down strike. Italian immigrants Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, two anarchists accused of murder and tried unfairly, were executed on August 23, 1927, in Boston, Massachusetts. The case became an international cause and sparked demonstrations and strikes throughout the world. On today's show, Patrick Dixon talks with historian Kevin Boyle, who studied the case extensively. Also this week, journalist and historian Edward McClellan recounts the gripping details of the historic Flint sit-down strike. He spoke with the Tales from the Ruther Library podcast about what we can learn today from the strikers' successful fight in 1936 and 1937 for shared prosperity. McClellan is author of Midnight in Vehicle Cities, General Motors, Flint, and the Strike that Built the Middle Class. And on Labor History in Two, Breaking the Glass Ceiling. The year was 1980. That was the day that Joyce Miller became the first woman ever elected to the executive board of the AFL-CIO. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. I'm joined today by Kevin Boyle. Kevin's a historian at Northwestern University, where he teaches modern American history. 5th of May, 1920, Italian-American anarchists Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were arrested in Boston for murder and payroll robbery. Now, this is quite an important incident, I understand. For, for those, those of us who can't remember who Sacco and Vanzetti are, can you, can you tell us about it, Kevin, please? Sure. So Nick Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were, as you said, Italian-American anarchists. They'd come to the States, um, Vanzetti in 1908 and Nick Sacco in 1909. And they were just ordinary working men. They made their lives in the American working class. Um, Nick Sacco was a worker in a shoe factory. And Vanzetti had done a whole bunch of different things, but at the time of his arrest, he was peddling fish in his neighborhood. Um, they were also deeply, deeply committed anarchists. Vanzetti's um, entire life was committed to the far, far radical end of the radical movement, of the anarchist movement. And Nick Sacco was also a committed anarchist, though he also had a family life that was profoundly important to him. Um, and as you mentioned, they were arrested on the 5th of May, 1920, not for a political crime. They were arrested for a street crime. It was a holdup that had happened about three weeks before in a little town outside of Boston, now suburban Boston. It was a holdup that had ended in the murder of two people out on the street, the paymaster, the guy who was carrying the money, and his guard. They were both killed in the course of this robbery, and Sacco and Vanzetti were arrested for that crime. So it wasn't a political arrest in that it was a political crime, it was a street crime. Um, but what they insisted was that they were actually being charged with the crime, not because there was good evidence to connect them to it, but because of their political beliefs. And so what happened over the course of really the next seven years is that the Sacco and Vanzetti case, um, first their trial, then their conviction, which happened about a year later, they were both found guilty, and then through a years and years of appeals became this test case for the repression of radicals in the United States. They had been arrested at the height of the Red Scare. And they said that they had been charged for this crime because of the anti-radical sentiment that was rampant in the United States in 1920. And so it became this amazing 
um, international affair as people across the world really protested their conviction and eventually, not to give away the end, their execution in 1927. And so the protests ranged from London to Paris to Berlin to the Sydney docks. It was a global protest of massive proportions. So is it fair to say that they received sort of support or solidarity from people who were outside the anarchist cause? Yeah, that's a terrific question. So the original defense, when after they were arrested, started as this tiny group of their comrades in the anarchist movement, Italian-Americans, um, mounting a defense in their behalf. But over time, it gradually spread to other radicals, to the socialists in the United States, the socialists abroad, the um, nascent communist movement in the United States, and to mainstream liberals in the United States and abroad. They got massive support um, from the old progressive wing of both the Democratic and Republican parties, as well as this huge array of radicals around the world. And most proclaimed that they didn't do it, that's correct? Well, that's a great question too, because there's been huge, since really since their arrest, there have been huge arguments about did they do commit this crime or did they not? There's three versions. There's the, yes, they did, they were convicted um, for that crime and that was correct. There is a very, very popular view that was um, most vigorously argued way back in the 60s is that Sacco was guilty and Vanzetti was not. And that one you hear a lot still. And then there's the view they are not, they were not guilty of the crime. Um, I've been dealing with that question for an awfully long time. I am absolutely confident that they did not commit that crime. So on the other side, for, a tr for, for this case to have gone on that many years, there must be a lot of government attorneys involved and a lot of judges. Is there any sort of internal conversations about we got to get them? Oh, yeah, there's all sorts of things that happen behind the scenes on both the defense side and on the prosecution side. So this is a local crime. This is not a federal crime. Homicide isn't a federal crime. And it's tried not in Boston, but outside of Boston, because that's actually where the crime took place. And the, it's a county prosecutor, and there's a series of prosecutors, because this is a long time, who actually um, pursue this case, but they pursue it with secret support from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, from the FBI. Um, even in the course of the trial, the trial judge, who is generally held up as kind of this symbol of repression, and it's not a bad portrait, really, um, he's private, he was privately saying, there isn't evidence to convict these guys, um, and yet they are convicted. The FBI has massive files and derails the investigations that follow um, after their conviction a number of times at the very end those liberals I mentioned were pressuring the FBI, release the files you have on Sacco and Vanzetti. And the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, by this point says, we don't have any files. Hmm. Well, they have massive files. They had huge files on Sacco and Vanzetti, stretching back to before their arrest. Well, Sacco, anyways, made it into the FBI files before their arrest at all. They were working with the prosecutors within about a day or a day and a half of the arrest in May of 1920. So there's huge conversations going on behind the scenes and huge maneuvering going on behind the scenes to make sure that conviction isn't overturned. On the other hand, the um, defense also has huge amounts of tensions and conflicts and decisions they make, including what I think may have been the most critical defense decision, which was about three or four years after their conviction, to derail the most important investigation into their innocence. Um, and they do that, the defense does that with Vanzetti's approval. Many, I mean, it seems to me that many radicals are locked up at this time, I suppose for being radicals. Are Sacco and Vanzetti really that significant as anarchists? <laughs> compared to, I mean, compared to other radicals like Big Bill Hayward and other people who get framed, Emma not, Goldman. Not even close. So Sacco and Vanzetti are foot soldiers in this movement. They are not 
leaders of the anarchist movement. They are not theoreticians of the radical movement, though quite frankly, Vanzetti really dreamed of being a theoretician of the movement, but he couldn't quite manage it. He had a, essentially a third grade education and then was uh, autodidact in that classic, kind of classic working class way. Um, so no, they were not significant figures in that prosecuting Sacco and Vanzetti was going to cut off the head of the anarchist movement in the United States the way that prosecuting Bill Big, Big Bill Haywood could do that for the IWW. Um, I think a couple of things make them really significant in terms of the, the huge attention they received, partly because this is a really dramatic crime, partly because it's not a political crime, because there, it sounds like so clearly, so obviously kind of a frame-up if you're on the radical side, which it was. Um, and partly, I think, because they were ordinary people, and Vanzetti especially, was brilliant at um, presenting himself as the victim of prosecution. He knew how to play people, man. He knew how to make himself into a martyr. Um, and I think that really helped as well. In a lot of ways, the big appeal of this case was that they were ordinary rather than that they were significant anarchists. That's, in that's interesting then. So it's almost not because they're important, but because they're unimportant and not because it's a strong case, but because it's a weak case. Exactly. Yeah, the very things that make it seem so obviously a presentation of American injustice is what makes it a powerful story. And, and Vanzetti, you... you you, you talked about him portraying himself. He does that by writing letters. Is that the main vehicle? He does a lot of things. Um, he writes a lot of letters. Um, he writes for the anarchist press, though that's a pretty small version. He gives interviews in the newspapers, in the mainstream press of the newspapers. He also has a whole coterie of people um, particularly progressive women who come to the prison over the years and see him as this kind of charming, innocent man, um, and he was a charming man, he was not an innocent one. So, you know, there's that cliche about the past being a different world, but what, what got you interested in this? What makes this uh, a case that's still worth talking about today? In well, I think there's two sides to that story. Um, for me, really, the driving force is not solving the crime though, you know, how do you kind of avoid wanting to be sucked into that question? Really what I find really compelling is that, especially in Vanzetti's story, what you find, what you have is this incredibly intimate, powerful, moving story of intense radicalization. What is it that makes somebody join a radical movement that's committed, explicitly committed to what we would call terrorist violence? What makes him see in that the transformative power to create what he dreams of as a new society? And then when he does get caught up in this massive repression, what makes him want to sacrifice his life for this set of ideas? That's what's fascinating about this is you get, for me, you get a window into questions that are of the most immediate force for today's world. So does it become a question of martyrdom to him at the end? Oh, it so becomes that. He's very much steeped in, um, he was raised in the Italian Catholic tradition. His family was actually devout Catholics. They were hardly radicals of any sort or another. So there's that side of kind of a cultural politics, the martyrdom idea. And then anarchism itself is so deeply steeped in the idea of sacrificing yourself for the cause. And he sees that as his moment of transcendence. He explicitly says that to the very end of his life. He sees himself as sacrificing himself for this movement and by doing that, transcending the limits of an ordinary life. So in a way, he almost feel validated that a century on people were discussing him and <laughs> yes, I think that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, I suspect he would be very, very happy to think that people 100 years on, or almost 100 years on now, were talking about the sacrifices he made and the politics he held, even if, as we talk about those politics, we find them in a lot of ways very disturbing. Right.
This has been fascinating. Thanks for talking to us today, Kevin. Thank you so much for letting me do it. Hello and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the heart of Motown, and I'm talking about Detroit. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and sitting right across from me, it's been about a year and a half, in a social, eh, not really social distance space, is the very famous Troy Eller English. Because you know why she's famous? She got new equipment. It's very exciting. She was playing with the dials and having so much fun with the new lights. Are you excited? I am excited. Yeah. This is the first time we've used it. We These bought are it nice, some nice microphones, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. But this is the first time we've seen each other and doing this on microphone in since March, April of last year. You've got him very beardy. Yeah. <laughs> Is that how you describe it? Is that the technical term for having a beard? Sure. You're very bluey. Yes. Yes. Troy has blue hair. Highlights. You know, the pandemic does that to you. Yes, it does. So remember, everybody, get your shots. Vaccinate, socially distance, and I'm talking to you, Daniel Irk. He's my cousin, and he actually listens to the podcast. Oh. And I said I'd give him a, a shout out. All right. But he only listens to the very first part. And, of course, the blooper reels. Because <laughs> the middle part, he has no interest in. Well, all right. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, fit in, in the middle, Yeah. some insults at him. Insults? I can't insult Daniel. Oh, okay. We oh, you, oh, oh, he's family you like. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's the one I like. <laughs> anyway, on today's... <laughs> Let's get back to this. On today's episode, we talk with Edward McClelland about his book, Midnight in Vehicle City, General Motors, Flint, and the Strike That Created the Middle Class. Troy? Yes? I was up in Flint recently, a couple months ago with uh, Grace. Congratulations. Yes, I know. Welcome Uh, to my hometown. I know. This is what I'm telling you. We went to the Flint sit-down Memorial Park. Very nice. Have you been? No. You grew up in Flint? I did. And you went in... I think it was built after I left. It was built after you left. Yeah. But you go to Flint often. You should stop by there. It's a very cool space. Okay. Not only is it a nice, peaceful little garden oasis kind of thing, but there are statues of the men sitting on the car benches. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side is homage to the women that fought outside. And it has them breaking the glass, windows, being hauled off by, by cops and stuff. But also in the middle is this huge like globe water st- the water feature mm-hmm. and it honors the women of the UAW. You know, various rank and file to leadership, various things. It's very, very cool. Nice. You gotta go. Sure. Please go. Okay. Take the kid. Okay. You know, it's, it's an experience. And then you go do whatever you do in Flint. I don't know what you do in Flint. Visit family. There you go. Okay. <laughs> but I digress. Okay. Uh, Edward McClelland. McClelland is an historian and journalist born and raised in Lansing, Michigan, who has been published in the Washington Post, New York Times, and others, and has written many of books, including Young Mr. Obama, The Third Coast, and Nothing But Blue Sky. So I was really glad to talk, get a chance to talk to him about his latest book, um, which is about the Flint sit-down strike. It reads like a Raymond Chandler novel, very noir-type feeling with suspenseful narration, and keeps you on the edge of your seat. This read is a play-by-play of those cold winter months of 1936 and 37 when men and women put their lives at stake for some decent human dignity in the workplace. And in doing so, began the seeds of the middle class of the United States and helped propel the UAW into being one of the most powerful unions in the country. But it's not just about those men and women in Flint, but the action that happened in Lansing and Washington, D.C. Ted really paints a lively picture for us to enjoy from the shop floor to the halls of the White House. He also gives us a bit of inspiration that these organizing tactics of the past are, quote, not an obsolete tactic. The blueprint for better working conditions and for a revival of the middle class is in this book. So listen, enjoy, and get a copy of Midnight in Vehicle City. All 
Hi, Ted. How are you doing? So glad that you could join our podcast. Well, glad to be back with the Ruther. I spent a lot of time there when I was researching Midnight in Vehicle City. That's right. So, you know, although it's virtually, but welcome back to the family of the Ruther Library. Absolutely. Now, I, your, your book is great. I loved reading it. It was a fun read. Um, but my first question really is about since Sydney Fine's book, Sit Down, what yeah. has changed in our society to really bring you about to write another book about the great sit down than Flint? Oh, I think so much has changed. I mean, it's such a different uh, moment in the history of, of, of Flint, of the auto industry, of the labor movement, of the, of the middle class. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, at the time that Sidney Fine wrote his book, you know, he wrote it, at, we were just at the absolute peak of economic equality in America in the late, in the late 1960s. And I think it was just assumed that uh, the victories of the, of the labor movement and the victories of the sit-down strikers were uh, a permanent feature uh, of American life. And of course, Flint was this prosperous, booming city. And now, you know, all, all those things have changed. Um, the, you know, the labor movement represents a, a far smaller slice of the of the uh labor force than it used to um the middle class has shrunk uh flint flint has shrunk i mean i I think one lesson of this is that flint's uh condition is sort of a barometer for the condition of the of the of the of the middle class and you know then the auto industry isn't as dominant uh, as it used to be so um uh, i i definitely thought it was time for Another look at the sit-down strike. Another thing that changes is that all the sit-down strikers have died and none mm-hmm. of them are around to tell their stories anymore. So mm-hmm. I, I thought that that was a, an, another good reason to write a book. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, your timing is, is perfect to have this book out, especially at this moment in labor history and current labor events. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and last, just last night, uh, President Biden said unions built the middle class. And I think uh, this book describes how they did it. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what I mean. It's this perfect timing for what's going on. Um, but what I really enjoyed about reading this too, is like it's, it's a change from other history books you uh, people read is because you have this noir type feeling to it. It creates yeah. a great gripping read. Man. <laughs> did, is this what your intent was at all along? Yeah. Or? I'm so glad you picked up on that. Absolutely. It was my intent. I mean, uh, you know, noir was a popular uh, style of that era. Um, you know, people were reading these pulp, pulp detective novels and pulp detective magazines. And I actually read some Raymond Chandler and Cornell Woolrich before I started <laughs> yeah. writing the book. So I could sort of get, get into the feel of it. Just, you know, the, the whole thing about, uh, you know, Wyndham Mortimer going to Flint and just, you know, checking into this cheap hotel mm-hmm. and, and being followed by Pinkerton detectives and, and, you know, having secret, you know, secret meetings in, in, in people's houses or in darkened churches. To, to me, it, it did feel like a noir, a noir story. And so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to give it that feeling. Yeah, it really, and, and you sometimes use the vernacular from back then. I, uh, I tried to, yeah. Yeah, you, you <laughs> even mentioned uh, that John Lewis got the gripe instead of calling it the flu. Oh, which I, right. <laughs> which I, I thought it was great. I, I think that was probably how it had been mentioned in the newspaper stories. <laughs> Probably, so probably. I, I, I just, uh, I just stuck with it. <laughs> no, that it, it made for a great time uh, reading your book. And so, but so while we set up the whole stage for some people who are not familiar with the sit down strike or just to remind themselves, like who were involved, what were the players and, and how did the city of Flint fit into this, this picture? Um, well, the, you know, the UAW had just sort of, you know, broken away from the American Federation of Labor and joined with the new uh, Congress of Industrial Organizations. It was led by John L. Lewis, and they had new leadership. They had more more militant leadership, and they decided they wanted to strike General Motors. There had been some unsuccessful strikes at General Motors in Flint in the years before. But, you know, the Wagner Act had just been passed, you know, guaranteeing workers the right to bargain collectively. And they were hoping that Michigan was going to elect a New Deal governor and uh, Frank Murphy, which Michigan did. And they decided to focus on Flint and in particular on Fisher Body Number 1 because that contained dyes that were used to, to stamp out bodies uh, for cars that were built throughout the GM universe around the country. So they could shut down Flint. If they could shut down Fisher 1, they could, they could shut down the 
the whole company. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, Murphy, Murphy was elect, Murphy's elected in November. And so they say, well, let's just have something after he's inaugurated after the, after the new year. But, you know, events kind of overtook them because there were rumors that the company was going to ship dyes from, to Grand Rapids uh, on right. December 30th. So they had to act, they had to act then. And that's when they, that's when they took over the plant. Uh, so he's, you know, he's a major player. The Ruther brought two of the Ruther brothers, Victor and Rory Ruther, they were organizers uh, in, in Flint. And then later on, other major players included Francis Perkins, mm-hmm. uh, who was the first secretary, first female cabinet secretary. She was the secretary of labor. And, and she, she did a lot to um, try to bring the company and the union to the, to the bargaining table. And, and she, as I recount in the book, she had some very, uh, contentious discussions and arguments with Alfred P. Sloan, right. who was the, then the chairman of, of General Motors. And he was sort of this starchy, remote figure from the 1920s who, who worked in New York and was not really in touch with what was going on in the, uh, on the shop floor in Michigan. Right. And um, it was interesting how you, you brought all these characters together and you, you started talking about how they'd had to take one. And that was, all right. There was some really good chapters here about that was gripping. And so kind of like on a timeline here, why don't you to give us a description? You said it happened fast. And when it happened, it was quick and kind of scary. Could you describe uh, the, these workers who are at, at will workers took over Fisher One? Right. Yeah. They just they just said, you know, they sent the they sent the. Um, they sent them the management home uh, and then, you know, there were women working in the plant, but they sent them home, them home because they didn't want there to be any rumors about what may, might be going on between men and women in the plant. That was going to, that would have undermined uh, support from home. Right. And, uh, you know, they barricaded themselves in there. Um, they welded doors shut. They, they, you know, they, they formed committees, they formed defense committees. Uh, and they, you know, they were constantly afraid that the, you know, the, the, the company or the the police were going to try to violently oust them uh, from the plant. I mean, the company went to court and and got an injunction, and that that came about on January 11th. There was the the battle of the running bulls when the Flint police uh, attacked uh, Fisher Body Number Two. They first they cut off the heat and they cut off the food, uh, and then they they attacked the plant with tear gas. But the strikers. Uh, managed to repel the attack. Uh, you know, they were aiming fire hoses at the police. They were throwing uh, door hinges at them through the windows. And uh, as the police retreated, they they turned around and opened fire, and they wounded uh, 14 strikers. Um, so, you know, these these guys were, were risking their lives. They were putting their lives on the line uh, for the success of this strike. Yeah, they were. And, and we got to remember, this is also January, where it's right. probably like 10, 15, 20 yeah, degrees. Yeah, it was uh, the t- the high temperature on the day of the Battle of the Running Bulls was 16 degrees, and, and there was no heat in the plant. So oh, it, was a, it was a pretty desperate situation. And this is this the first time, I mean, I'm kind of stuck in here, but you shed a wonderful light on those who were the backbone of this strike and that were the that was the women right of the uaw strikers and supporters um is this where they first came about and just said hey God, hey we have to protect our guys who are in here right yeah that was you know there was a woman named janura johnson and some people think there should be a a statue of her in flint like there are statues of you know david buick and, and billy durant um mm-hmm. and uh she was someone who had been involved in socialist causes. She'd been very politically active and her husband uh, was a striker. And she went down to the Pengelly building, which was a strike headquarters and wanted to volunteer. And they said, well, we can put you in the kitchen. She said, <laughs> I, I don't want to be in the kitchen. I want to be out on the front line. So she organized a, a picket line and her two-year-old son was holding a, a picket sign that said, my daddy strikes for us little tykes. Yeah. Uh, yep. And uh, during the Battle of the Running Bulls, she was there. And after the police shot at the strikers, women ran down to the plant and, you know, put their bodies in between the, the two sides. And so she, the next day, she, she, she formed what they, she called the Women's Emergency Brigade, which was sort of a paramilitary outfit that was going to uh, support the strikers when there was trouble. And they, they wore red berets and they wore red armbands and... Uh, uh, they carried billy clubs underneath their coats. 
Hmm. And they actually went into action um, after there was a stalemate in the strike. And so the union decided to take over another plant, uh, Chevy, Chevy four, an engine plant that made yeah, that was what That was an amazing chapter too. That got me yeah. on the edge of my seat as well. And, and, and there, there was a diversionary tactic at, at another Chevy plant and the, they, they drew the plant police there and the plant police were firing tear gas at the workers. So the women showed up with their billy clubs and they broke the windows to let the gas seep out. And uh, the, the uh, uh, newspapers the next day were saying, you know, crazed women smashed windows for no apparent reason. So uh, they were, they were, so they were on the front lines uh, uh, in that way. You're absolutely, you were. And, and you're right to point out that the next day the, the media was saying crazed women. And for the longest time, the narrative, whenever you saw those images, those moving images of the women smashing the windows, you would think they're creating violence. They're destroying the factory and doing stuff. It took a long time for us to realize that they were trying to get the tear gas out. You know? Right. Yeah. And, um, that has a lot to do with the story of Flint. There was a lot of that the media was portraying as not true of actually what's going on. Um, and behind the scenes, of course, you had Governor Frank Murphy the whole yeah. time trying to do something. Here's, <laughs> he's, a, he's, he's brand new in the job, and here he has to face something right. like this. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, even before, even before he, was, he was inaugurated, uh, the, yeah. the, the strike starts. So it yeah, pretty much consumed the, the beginning of his governorship. Um, and it probably had something to do uh, with him being defeated for re-election after two years, after one term. Because he, he, he didn't bow down to GM or to what the general public was saying. He Right. I mean, he, could, he could have legally, you know, when he, after the Battle of the Running Bulls, he sent the National Guard to Flint. Uh, and um, it was the first time the National Guard had been called out in a labor strike since a mining strike in the Upper Peninsula. I think it was in 1913, and he could have legally um, uh, used the National Guard to expel the strikers from the plant, uh, and because you know, the, he, there was that court injunction, but he just said, "I want you to just set up, set up in between the plant and the uh, um, and the, the police, and make sure there's no more violence." And so there, I've got great pictures in the book of, you know. The striker, they're all they're all dressed in World War One uniforms, mm. you know. And they've got machine guns and they're marching through the streets with, with bayonets. So you know, Flint was a kind of, uh, for the time that this was going on. Yeah, and and again, back to what perception we have of the photos. Um, when I was growing up, you saw the picture, and there's no real description. It said National Guard there for UAW strike, and you assumed immediately right. that they were there to fight against the strikers. They weren't there to hold the right. peace line going on. Right. Yeah. So and, again, in a couple, yeah, a couple of times uh, he threatened to, when, when he was trying to get John L. Lewis to make a concession, he would, Murphy threatened to um, uh, send the national guard in, but Lewis always called his bluff. So. <laughs> yes. Lewis knew his bluffs, especially with right. that letter that Murphy had. Right. And very, I think he was just, he wrote that, and I think it was, he 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 just wrote it to sort of protect himself politically because he didn't reveal it until uh, his confirmation hearing for Attorney General, you know, Chief Law Enforcement Officer of the United States. He wanted to show he wasn't just going to let the union get away with trespassing forever. But, so this goes to show: hold on to your letter sometimes because that got him exactly. far. Actually, save your mail. <laughs> and um, you mentioned earlier Frances Perkins. I find her one of the unsung heroes of the progressive movement. I mean, she did a lot almost, and you gave a great biography of her, a great synopsis of her life. Um, what, you know, and, and the descriptions you gave about her battling Sloan verbally. Right. Um, what kind of, here's, here's the first woman as secretary of labor. Um, what kind of woman was she? And why don't you just describe to our listeners how much action she actually took on getting this strike resolved? Well, I guess you could say she was sort of a do-gooder from New England. She had worked in, uh, I think she worked with Jane Addams. She worked in settlement houses in, in Chicago. And she worked with, she, she worked for, for fair labor laws after the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in New York. 
Uh, you know, she, she'd worked on a lot of um, industrial and labor commissions under Franklin D. Roosevelt when he was governor of New York. And so he took her along uh, to Washington. And, uh, you know, I think she was, she was important because Roosevelt didn't like to be uh, personally involved with labor strikes. He had a secretary of labor for that. So, so he really put her uh, on, the, on the front lines of, of, of this. And she, she had given an oral history to uh, Columbia University. And that's where I, I, you know, got those conversations with, with Sloan. You know, she thought she had a, uh, Sloan was refusing to negotiate with the strikers as long as they occupied his plants. And she thought she had an agreement with him to, to actually do so. And when he backed out on it, she just, you know, unloaded on him. She said, you, you're, you're a rotter. You're going to go to hell. You're like the rich man who can't get through the eye of the needle. And Sloan was just retorting, you know, you can't talk to me like that. I'm Alfred P. Sloan. I'm, I'm, I have $70 million and I made it all myself. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's one of the, that's one of the most uh, entertaining scenes uh, in the book. And that's the, the only research I did outside the state of Michigan was when I went to Columbia University and uh, looked at the Francis Perkins papers there. Oh, okay. Well, you, you uh, sum up their argument, let's say very nicely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, um, you know, it's all, it's all her, it's all her memory. So I just, I presented it as, 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 as it actually happened. I tried to include a lot of dialogue in the, in the book. Um, which helped a lot. It gave yeah. a sense of realism. Right. And especially with your anecdotes of those who were in the strike from, from the, the basic guys who were going in, you found their oral histories, incorporated their stories in to even like at the very end where you're talking about the, the middle class um, all, all, all around and shaping the, the salaries of the workers in Flint and uh, your stories of, um, especially comes to mind Everett uh, at the very end, yeah. his legacy. Yeah. That is the legacy what you're trying to get to in the book too. It's like, here's the right. middle class, the UAW created it. Why don't you tell us more about this, this, this ethos of what the UAW built, which is, we could say, the middle class of America. Right. Well, you know, as far as the, the voices of the strikers, um, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, there, there was uh, the U of M Flint uh, uh, labor history uh, project interviewed a lot of a lot of strikers. Um, and that, that was just an invaluable resource because I was able to draw on all those all those oral histories. But yeah, Everett, Everett Ketchum, he was one of the last surviving sit-down strikers. He died in 2013. He was 98 years old. And uh, to me, he was a close family friend of ours. You know, he was always over for Sunday dinner. And he married my stepmother's mother after she was widowed. Uh, and he, he just exemplified the, the, the victories, the, you know, the, the good life in Michigan that the sit-down strike had won. He started as uh, an apprentice earning 25 cents an hour. Uh, and when the strike started and he joined and he, when he retired, he was a, in the seventies, he was a tool and die maker earning $27 an hour. Uh, and, you know, he mm -hmm. owned, he, he, tra he, he married a woman from uh, East Lansing. Um, and so he transferred to Oldsmobile and, uh, you know, he owned how they he owned houses, um, off campus houses. He rented to students, and he sort of became this minor local celebrity. Uh, they call him the tooth fairy or the dental man because he liked to flirt with waitresses. Uh, he noticed that a waitress at his favorite pancake house didn't smile, and he asked her why, and she just said, "Well, look at my teeth." And he said, "Well, how much is going to cost to fix those?" She said, fourteen thousand dollars." So he wrote her a check for fourteen thousand dollars. Wow. He did the same for another, another waitress. So, you know, he didn't have any kids, so he spent it on, he spent it on waitresses. And, and, and it was the salary that he was, it was bringing his hourly that came brought yeah. in. You yeah. Know? You know, we, we thought he had, you know, maybe half a million dollars saved up. From, wow. Just from working wow. in the shop and being wow. a landlord. Yeah. That's amazing. So what, what was, what other surprises did you take when you're researching this book? Um, I, I guess just, you may, you know, how bad and how dangerous the, the working conditions were, you know, it was never 
the strike was wasn't about money. Um, you know, there was no job security there. You know, you had really had to, you know, you had to bring food to your boss, or you had to paint your boss's house, uh, your foreman, or you know, hire someone else. And you know, not a lot of there weren't a lot of workers over forty because they just couldn't keep up with the, you know, the speed up. They, they mm-hmm. talked about the speed up when they'd start at forty cars an hour and they were trying to make quota and they they crank it up to sixty cars an hour and the workers mm-hmm. couldn't keep up and the line broke down because it wasn't engineered to. To run that fast, you know, it was, it was dangerous. You know, I talked about a worker who put his eye out and took him years to get any money from the state as compensation because there was no workman's compensation. There was no health insurance. So, uh, you know, they wanted they wanted job security. They wanted dignity. They wanted things that workers take for grant, granted today. And they, they won those things as a result of the sit-down strike. And after that, there were time studies as to how fast the line should run in. Layoffs were based on seniority. It was, it's, um, while you're talking about this, this, this factory work, which is hazardous, it raises the issue that during this pandemic, again, that veil was kind of pushed away. We saw what was going on in packing houses. We saw what was going on in Amazon. Um, that we knew that there were ambulances waiting outside in the summer times, but you know, they couldn't take, you know, bathroom breaks, uh, the packing house, they were getting COVID. And so what have we learned from this, man? So UAW. Yeah, well, you know, it was just interesting to me how similar the concerns of the of the workers you know, who wanted to form a union at Amazon were to the sit-down strikers. Uh, you know, they wanted more job security. They wanted more humane pace of work. They wanted more say in the workplace. And that that uh, failed. And it's, you know, there's just been an interesting dynamic and a, that a guy and a guy named Harold Meyerson wrote something about it is that you know, the labor movement has just become more of a white collar movement lately. And his theory, and I think it's true, is that you know, the less replaceable workers are, the more confident they feel in being able to form a union. So, you know, people who really don't have a lot of job skills and, and have these tough jobs, they're worried that if they form a union, the company will just you know, move somewhere else or, you know, pull the rug out from under them. And I think that explains why the, the uh, effort at Amazon uh, failed, and, you know, why, why they're failing to get into uh, some of these really low wage industries. But, you know, whenever it's, uh, you know, the journalists, teaching assistants, they always, um, they always vote for unions. Yeah. And, and um, when you mentioned the fact about um, respect in the workplace, even right now, we're still having issues with teachers getting respect in, in Gross Point right now. Um, it okay. was interesting. Teacher uh, quit right in front of the school board and said, you're not respecting us. And huh. there's walkouts going on right now, actually. Um, but it's true about, you know, the, the factory workers and those, those, those skilled workers, they're afraid. They're absolutely afraid because someone's right behind them still in this day and age waiting to take their job. Right. And it's 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 definitely a deferment, but somehow, some way, there will be a shift. I think, hopefully. But um, well, I mean, I think know. you know, Biden has been say, they're saying he's the most pro-union president we've ever had, maybe even more than than Franklin D. Roosevelt. You know, he made a big speech saying you know, unions built the middle class, and every worker has the right to to join a union. And he mentioned Alabama, although not Amazon, uh, by name. And I think one lesson from this book is that when Government takes the side of of unions and working people, then then they succeed. Uh, you know, if they hadn't had the support of of uh, Frank Murphy and Francis Perkins and even Franklin D. Roosevelt, Roosevelt had to make a phone call to a GM executive to get them to agree to sit down and negotiate with the union in Detroit because you know General Motors, biggest company in the world, they weren't going to listen to anybody but the president. So right. uh, Perkins right. told Roosevelt he had to do it. He did it. When I was reading that, I, I don't think uh, many, um, I don't think Elon Musk would take a phone call from Biden. That's the problem. You, today. you don't think so? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> what about um, Jeff Bezos? He might. He just might. Yeah. He, he might. Um, he'll get pressure from his, his friends from um, Costco to say, you better pick up the phone. You know? That is the takeaway, I think, from your book. Um, that, And you just answered it in a way. It's, like, it's for those who are in in those factories today, who are also union members, who are also just the general public, you got to remember these are the things that were fought for and won to give us a better, better, um, better American lifestyle. I guess. Yeah. Um, always at the end of our podcast, we always love to hear where you did your research, specifically the Ruther Library, but also the you mentioned there's a lot of other places around the state that you use oh, to yeah. create this book. Yeah. So we'd love to well, hear. The, all I, I mean, 
the the Ruther Library and then the U of M Flint Library, especially to see uh, historical collections. Those were probably the two two biggest places. Uh, the, there was the Flint Public Library. Uh, there's a Library of Michigan in my hometown of of Lansing. Um, and then there was the Columbia University Library in New York City, and, and I would say those are the main places. Yeah, Detroit, Detroit, and and uh, Flint. Uh, you know, I I stayed with a couple in Flint when I would be doing research there, and then I'd drive down to Detroit every once in a while to go to the to the Ruther Library. Um, Ted, I really appreciate you being on our podcast. Um, Thanks for you, having me. You really did explain everything to us, and we um, okay. I love it. Thanks a lot. And everybody got to buy this book. This is a lovely book. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Are you recording? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> am I? I don't know. Do you, I think I am. I think that light means that it's recording. I have no idea what that light does. Troy? What did you call him? Edward McClelland. 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 That's what I said. No. What did I say? McClelland. McClelland. Hey, McClelland. <laughs> <In> the Highlands. <laughs> You're a Highlander now. On today's episode, we talk with Edward McClelland. How's that? No? Ah. Uh, McClelland. And that part was fine, but you said today like you were in the outback. On today's episode, was that Aussie? Is that no, too Aussie or New Zealand for you? I think it was all right. You know, it was so much better when I didn't see you. I know. <laughs> We're going back to that. Back then it was more relaxed. I could be in my basement uh-huh. with my beer. And your fade up. What? Feet up. Fade up. I thought you said fade up. No. I'm not doing a fade. I might have said it. I you don't know. know. Oh, oh, so you can't say pronounce things either, huh? Okay. <laughs> Fine. All right. And I'm talking to you, Daniel. Erk. <laughs> <laughs> was that better? That was we had a little rough beginning there. Well, you know, was, uh, everything about returning to work has been uh, a little rough. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1980. That was the day that Joyce Miller became the first woman ever elected to the executive board of the AFL-CIO. In her 2012 obituary, the New York Times described Joyce's commitment to women's rights in the labor movement, writing, Miss Miller saw union membership, collective bargaining, and labor contracts as the road to equality for working women. And she believed that women should be a part of union management to make sure that attention was paid to issues like equal opportunity, equal pay, parental leave, child care, health insurance, and discrimination in the workplace. Joyce grew up in Chicago where she earned her master's degree in education from the University of Chicago. She first entered the labor movement as a worker at a gumball factory while attending college. 
After graduation, she became the education director for the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union in Pittsburgh. She remained dedicated to union education for rank and file members. Joyce was a founding member of the Coalition of Labor Union Women, or CLUE. She served as CLUE's East Coast Vice President, eventually being elected CLUE's President in 1977, a position she would hold for 15 years. Under her leadership, CLUE worked as a powerful voice for women's reproductive rights, improving childcare, and increasing the number of women in union leadership positions. In 1993, President Bill Clinton named Joyce Miller the executive director of the Glass Ceiling Commission. The purpose of the commission was to gather testimony about women's experience in the workplace and to draft a report of their findings. Of her career, Joyce said, I came to the labor movement with stars in my eyes. I saw it as a vehicle for social change and I never changed my mind. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. If there was a God, I prayed that he would hear. In this Dante, they closed their eyes. And their dad said goodbye. Sleep tight, my daughter. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks find the show. The interview with Edward McClellan about the historic Flint sit-down strike came to us from our friends at the Tales from the Ruther Library podcast. It's one of our very favorites, and you can find it on your favorite podcast platform. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music is For Ines and Dante by the R.J. Phillips Band, a group of Baltimore musicians. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdat. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history, and see you next time. Lives on.